This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, we're going to bring you some of the most important highlights from our daily radio show this week. And Jason, it was week 15. We welcomed officially the first day of summer to kick off our week. And then once again, some very familiar themes weighing on the minds of investors and on the stock market this week, the virus, trade tensions. And we continue to talk with our guests about racism in the United States, how to stop just talking about it and to actually take action. Well, and when you think of the people you want to hear from, I dare say we had the top of the list Mm. this week. LeBron James, my conversation, it's the cover story in this week's Business Week, how he and his longtime business partner, Maverick Carter, have been managing a moment in history like no other. We've always been in this position. We've always strived. We've always had to plan um, for this moment. Um, It's something that I've always um, had a passion about. And that's, you know, letting people know and having people to understand how important we are as um, Black America, you know, and, and, and the powers and the creativity and the language and, and everything and the struggle that we've had for so long. And for me to have the brands that I have and, and having uh, Spring Hill and having Uninterrupted and now today having a nonprofit organization and we are uh, more than a vote, it's allowing people to now really sense uh, what we've been striving to do from the very beginning. So um, it's come, you know, you always talk about timing and, and I guess, I guess the timing is, is, is perfect for what we've always wanted people to understand what we're all about as a company and as a brand and as individuals. And Jason, we're going to hear a lot more from LeBron a little bit later on in our broadcast. We'll also hear from the president of the Center for Talent Innovation, Linnea Irvin. She is someone who's been such an advocate for diversity and inclusion, spent a long time on Wall Street as well. So another thoughtful chat with her. First up, though, we love Tom Orlick. He's got Mm -hmm. a new book out. He's the chief economist for Bloomberg Economics. And talk about timely. Oh, my God. So timely, Jason. And there's an excerpt of that book in the magazine this week. His book, it's entitled China, The Bubble That Never Pops. I spent 11 years in China, Carol. Uh, I moved there in 2007. Uh, I left in the summer of 2018, just when the trade war was heating up. Um, And the sort of the consistent consensus, the kind of the prevailing view amongst foreign investors and economists and policymakers from all that time uh, was that, yes, it's impressive. They've got double digit growth, but you just wait. It's a bubble and it's going to implode. There's some kind of China crash coming. Um, And of course, that crash never came. Uh, So the motivation for me in putting pen to paper and writing this book um, was really to explore why. Why have we got it so wrong on China? What are the reasons for resilience? And how could that help us think about the future? So what was the biggest surprise to you? Because I know there are numerous answers, but what was the one where, as you dug into this, Tom, you thought, wow, I either underestimated that as a reason or I just didn't think of it? I think one important thing, Jason, um, which struck me as I was reading, as I was writing it is, there are lots of things that we think of as weaknesses in China, which are, which are actually strengths um, when you consider them in the Chinese context. So a really important one is state control of the economy and state control of the financial system. So, of course, here in America, um, we see the markets as a key driver of dynamism. Um, 
And for an advanced economy, which is trying to push back the frontier, trying to innovate, that market-driven dynamism is really critically important. Um, but that's not what China's trying to do. China's not trying to push back the technology frontier. China's trying to catch up. Um, and when you're trying to catch up, having a plan to catch up, having a bunch of businesses that will execute on that plan, a bunch of banks that will lend money to help the businesses execute on that plan can be really powerful and really important. I think that's a really important point because if you look at kind of the United States as a comparison, we often talk, Tom, about the inability for policymakers and, you know, parties in power to actually think really, really longer term, you know, in terms of things that need to be done in this country and create programs that will have economic market country payoffs, citizen payoffs. But China can do it, right? They do those 10-year plans and they just set out and do it. I mean, you know, not all the citizens may like what's coming, but nonetheless, it's a long-term plan and it creates dramatic changes in China. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Carol. Um, I mean, I want to be clear that I'm not advocating for the Chinese political system. Right. Uh, I don't think there's many people uh, here in the States who'd want to go to, to China to, uh, to, enjoy, to enjoy the how things play out in that respect over there. Um, but in terms of economic planning, there's a really clear distinction. I remember being over there, there was this one moment which stays in my mind. There was this split-screen moment on Bloomberg Television. Um, and on one side, we had the U.S. Congress, which was debating a bill to fund the government for one more day. And on the other screen, we had Xi Jinping, who was setting out a vision for China's economy in 2050. Um, and it was just such a stark contrast, right? I mean, mm -hmm. can't agree funding for a day, planning for the next 30, 40 years. And that's Bloomberg Economics Chief Economist Tom Orlick. Always love catching up with him and talk about a man on the news here. I mean, this was a week where China, it felt like Carol came back to the fore mm -hmm. in multiple iterations, some comments having to be walked back, and some real concerns around the world, not just about the virus, but about trade. Right. His book, China, the Bubble That Never Pops. And bottom line, Jason, from him, he says, one day there will be a day of reckoning for China. It will have ripple effects across the world. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, it's been a big week for the Bloomberg Invest Global Conference. And China was front and center there as well. And a part of my conversation with Blackstone Chairman and CEO Steve Schwartzman. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show and beyond. We were all over the place, Carol, virtually. Oh, my God, we were. The Bloomberg Invest Global Virtual Conference, as you said, Jason, this was three days around the world talking to the most important voices in the investment and financial community about what comes next. Well, and one of the big names speaking was one of the biggest in investing, talking about Steve Schwartzman, Blackstone Group co-founder, chairman, and CEO. Check out what he had to say. Well, this has been a pretty remarkable uh, uh, environment. Uh, imagine. Uh, uh, you know, sort of around the last year end, if somebody told you that we were going to have the voluntary closing 
of the world's economy, uh, with certain exceptions to just keep food moving and other things, you, you would say something like that couldn't happen. And if it did, uh, it would result in a global depression. Uh, and it just like wasn't on the page. Uh, and in effect, uh, that, those directions uh, to almost every country to stop your economy did occur. And unemployment has gone up massively, but we, but we haven't had a depression. And, and the reason for that uh, is that we've learned from the past uh, and you've had massive government intervention, a massive transfers of trillions of dollars of monies to people who need it to in effect replace the lost revenue from shutting our economies. And, and that first uh, big stimulus bill in the United States, uh, you know, followed by uh, really uh, uh, very, very large uh, follow on by the uh, central bank in the United States, the Fed is, is pumping unprecedented peacetime monies into economies. And in fact, uh, the amount of deposits in banks because money was transferred to people has exploded. Uh, and, and so we are awash uh, with liquidity that was necessary uh, to give, give you some idea. U.S. Uh, GDP is around $21 billion, to, excuse me, trillion dollars a year. And right. say we miss a quarter uh, or more. So, so we, we're sort of missing $6 trillion coming in. Uh, and, and somebody's got to fill that hole. Uh, and that's what all these stimulus bills and the Fed in effect are doing in a very simple way. And, and so we've had this dramatic collapse, stock markets down 34, and now it's bounced up as if nothing uh, had occurred because of the liquidity and support from the Fed and also- So, the so let me ask you about that. So yeah. so Steve, if, if I may, that specific point is one that I really feel like I want to understand from your perspective, which is this apparent disconnect with every headline that we're reading every day related to virus cases going up, this medical crisis, this health crisis that we're going through, and a stock market, if I even just look at my own 401k, that has rebounded. Is it just- basically the liquidity that's been pumped into the system. Help me understand this gap. Yeah, I, I think it's mostly the liquidity that's in the system and also some uh, uh, elements of confidence. In other words, you have 130 uh, vaccines that are in the process of development. Uh, the fact that we'll go O for 130 uh, really seems remote. Uh, there are three different types of vaccines, uh, and 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 so I think people are much more optimistic uh, that that that's going to occur on a time frame that's way different uh, than the development of vaccines was uh, in the past, where the fastest one was like four and a half years, and people are have 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 optimism that within the next uh, nine months uh, we'll have enough positive uh, could be year. Uh, outcomes from trials that that you'll get there uh, within a year to start really producing uh, large scale uh, vaccine and there's other therapeutic uh, breakthroughs that are occurring if you if you get the uh, uh, the virus 
The, the second thing I'd say about these cases going up, uh, how could one believe they wouldn't? Um, I, I, I don't find that surprising. People have been locked up in their homes uh, for two to three months. Uh, and when you let them out, there'll be more socialization. Uh, and, and people won't understand truly uh, that this can get them sick. Uh, and once they see that and, and the appropriate um, uh, government uh, response will be to first really warn people uh, in democracies, apparently, they like to see bad things happen before people in democracies actually respond. Uh, so so, so I, I completely expected this to happen. I think the markets did as well. Uh, and, and that will be put under better control because there's no option. Nobody really wants to get sick. Uh, and, and so you, you'll, you'll have change uh, in behavior. Uh, as as the number of cases goes up, and eventually that'll be uh, beaten down. Uh, but but I think uh, it's it's you'll you'll also see uh, a big uh, V uh, in terms of the economy going up for the next few months because it's been closed, and as people are allowed to go back, the economy uh, will really respond uh, uh, a lot. Uh, but there's only so much the economy that's highly complex uh, can respond uh, just because not all things uh, go up equally uh, and it, it will take uh, quite a while before we, we sync up and get back uh, to 2019 levels. We've certainly been through a test. Uh, it's, it's a test for society. Uh, you know, I I still find it astonishing that 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 you manage to have the vast majority of people uh, around the world sort of go on to suspension uh, for for two to three months, and and so there's going to be all kinds of. Uh, changes. That's Steve Schwartzman, chairman, CEO, and co-founder of Blackstone Group at the Bloomberg Live Invest Global Virtual Event. What I loved about what he had to say, Jason, and man, this was all over the Bloomberg terminal, he predicts a big V in terms of the economy going up for the next few months because he says it's been closed. But there's a lot of folks that say that's not going to happen. Well, and the market didn't seem to agree with him for much of the week, but it's hard to bet against Steve Schwartzman. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, as the world continues to reopen slowly and piecemeal, how travel is rebounding from the unprecedented effects that the pandemic has had. We'll hear from Kayak co-founder Steve Hafner. Talk about a front row seat. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations that we have throughout the week on our daily radio show. And Jason, of course, all of this happening in real time as a lot of news was changing again around us. Well, Carol, we know there's been some optimism, but a lot more pessimism when it comes to travel. So who better to catch up with than Kayak co-founder and CEO Steve Hafner? He's this week's Business Week Talks. We published uh, data on Kayak from about a billion consumer queries. And it's actually showing you that there is some recovery in travel interest. So the, the bottom period for, uh, for what we've seen in our query volume was happened in uh, April 7th when queries fell 80% year over year. And since then, they've been gradually recovering. So yesterday, if you look at the data, uh, query volume was only down 51% versus the previous year. So there's a long way to go, to be sure. 
but consumers at least are thinking about flying again, and they're looking for trips. Tell us about, you know, okay, so some, I mean, percentage-wise, can you give us an idea? Because I know we keep talking about these numbers, and they're coming off of such significant lows. I mean, it's still way down, correct? It's still way down. So, yeah, last year there were twice as many people looking for flights on kayak than there are uh, this year as of yesterday. But that's that's come up from 80% down the first week of April. So it, it is a recovery. And remember, this is search data. This isn't actually booking data. So this just means that yeah. people are thinking about right. traveling again. Right. And I know that that is largely based on consumers. Talk to us about corporate travel, because I think we're all trying to figure that out, not just, again, from a personal perspective, from our own work, but, you know, knowing and talking to a lot of other CEOs about the decisions they're making in terms of, you know, maybe we should video con, maybe we don't need to take quite as many trips. What's your read on that? I share those sentiments. You know, you're talking to somebody who used to travel on a plane almost every day. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's been an amazing boon to productivity not to have to do that. And I think this pandemic, you know, one of the, the few bright spots is it's taught people how to conduct their affairs uh, somewhat efficiently online. So uh, typically in past recessions, and, and we're in one right now, business travel is one of the last things to return because companies are, are really suffering, right? So consumers still want to travel, but, consumer, but consumers may, have, may be able to afford that in a way that the business um, can't. So typically, business is the last thing to recover. I think it's gonna, we're going to see more of the same now, and it may never fully recover back to the levels that it once was because people have learned to adapt. Wow. So we may never see 2019 levels again. We're preparing to see 2019 levels back in terms of total travel demand by about 2023. That's kind of how we've structured our cost and, and our balance sheet. Um, but you know, I, I think how people are traveling and what they're thinking about and how often they're going to travel are different. And that has big implications for how airlines do their schedules. Because you've got to remember that the business traveler usually is paying half the revenue on one of those flights. Mm-hmm. So I think that you'll see the frequency of trips go down, and I think you'll see average fares go up, too, as business travelers no longer subsidize you know, the, the consumers to leisure travel. So what about on the open table side? What are you seeing in terms of restaurants? We're seeing recovery in restaurants as well. So people want to travel and they also want to dine out. And, and we're seeing a stronger recovery on, on the restaurant side of the business. Uh, half of, you know, we've got about 60,000 restaurants um, on the open table platform. About half of them have reopened, which is great. And in terms of seated diners, um, we, hit, we capture that data and we make it publicly available as well. Uh, that was down only about 70% yesterday. Uh, so, so people are going out and 70% sounds like a big reduction, but you have to remember that because of, COVID-19 restrictions, most restaurants aren't operating at full capacity. Right. Now, a lot of them are only outdoor only, or they've set up tents outside, or that even that, they have to have their tables spaced six feet apart. So a lot of them are at, you know, 15 to 20 percent capacity. And, you know, they're, they're, they're selling every seat they can and every table they can, which is great news. Right. Not enough to keep them in business. Right. Mind you, but uh, but it does show that consumers want to get out of their houses. And to that point, I mean, I believe you guys had forecast, and and I think others have followed you in in this regard that we could see a quarter of restaurants across the country go out of business. Does that still feel uh, about right, or or what are you guys thinking now? That's still our our best guess. Restaurants are a tough business; they go out of business all the time, as you, as you well know. But usually, when a location goes under, it's because the concept was bad or the management was bad, and a new restaurant takes its place. That's not what we're expecting now. So when we talk about 25 rest, 25% of restaurants going out of business, that means the location shutters permanently and becomes something else. And, you know, it, it all depends on 
what happens with COVID-19 and the restrictions, right? So can we safely dine out again indoors? Uh, will employees come back and start working in restaurants again uh, versus collecting benefits or doing other types of, of work? So, right. you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens, but that's, that's our prediction. And that's Kayak co-founder and CEO Steve Hafner, also the CEO of OpenTable. So he has a window in. And Carol, I think one of the things that we really like, he's got the data. Oh my God, he does, Jason. And it's this week's Business Week Talks. It's in the magazine. It's in our podcast feed. It's online. What's interesting, my takeaway, he says how they're doubling down on some of their business initiatives because of the impact of the virus. And he talked about grocery stores, universities, and bars soon being able to use their apps. So definitely... They are leveraging their platform. Trying to adapt to a changing world, that's for sure. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, how WW, the company formerly known as Weight Watchers, Mm -hmm. is pivoting amid our new world order. Our interview with WW International CEO, Mindy Grossman, coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important and, we hope, informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show, Carol. Yeah, and one of those conversations, she's a friend of the show, Jason. You and I both have spent a lot of time talking with Mindy Grossman. She's the president and CEO of WW International, used to be known as Weight Watchers, but she has been transforming that company, thinking about wellness holistically. And I got to say, though, they've been going through a tough time because of the virus. They've had to cut costs. They've had to let go workers. They've had to shut down some of their outlets. We had a lot to talk about with Mindy Grossman. We entered the year with unbelievable momentum. You know, we had launched My WW. We were in the throes of our digital transformation. Uh, we did a nine-city tour with Oprah, touching, you know, 135,000 people. And, you know, then all of a sudden, mid-March, um, the world changed. And we had to quickly pivot, um, not only for the safety and security of our employees and our members, But it was important to us that we kept our community together because of our approximately 5 million members who are all digital, 25% of them also attended our studios. In March, in six days, we had to train 14,000 coaches. We pivoted our whole product and tech team. And simultaneously in 12 countries, we launched virtual workshops, which In the first week, we had 15,000, and they're still continuing today. And that pivot for us, even though we saw suppressed subscriptions starting in, you know, mid-March, that started really picking up again uh, starting in mid-April. And, you know, now our digital subscribers are at an all-time high, as is our retention and it was our maniacal focus on not losing our community in a world where community and motivation and support are really more important than ever just even psychologically for people we also took the learnings from the tour we did physically with oprah and said what can we do for people who need this now more than ever And we launched a four-week, every Saturday, virtual tour with Oprah and made the decision to make it free globally for everyone because it's really what people needed right now. And that's what our brand has stood for since the very beginning. 
And we had, just in the first one, over half a million people live, and we've now had millions of people watch the content. Um, so what we've been trying to do is use this as an opportunity to accelerate our digital transformation, um, reduce our real estate footprint, right. be able to add you know, the, to the ecosystem of wellness. And you know, I think now we're seeing more than ever uh, health and wellness is on top of everybody's mind. It's not a luxury anymore. It's a necessity. Talk about, Mindy, and I believe we've talked about this before. You've mentioned her a couple times, the Oprah effect here. I mean, what has she done for the brand, especially in this time? It feels almost more important uh, to have that voice for a whole variety of reasons. She has been such a partner to me since, you know, the day I joined uh, the company, certainly as a board member, but also as a thought partner in how can we work together to really give people the tools and the motivation so they can really live their best, healthiest lives. So, you know, if you look at what we've built out in terms of this wellness ecosystem, whether it's nutrition or activity or mindset, motivation, sleep, relationships, whatever that is, Having Oprah and her voice to be able to amplify, I mean, it's really her superpower, is to galvanize people. And we really saw it on the tour, and we also saw it on this virtual tour. And I know she feels um, now more than ever what we bring um, is going to be more critical for people. And, you know, as we talked about moving into the broader scope of wellness, we said we're never going to abdicate our global leadership in healthy weight loss, which is so important. If you look at the number one factor in COVID deaths was obesity. Um, Diabetes is a a huge factor. And we're seeing from all our data in terms of why people are joining um, and what what is top of mind. It's I need to be healthy, not just for me, but healthy to others. I need to not get sick get healthy, I need to prevent what is happening. And I think, you know, COVID has really changed the mindset. The other thing it's done, though, it's really identified the health disparities among Mm -hmm. communities. And I think that going to be a big focus as well. So Mindy, I got to ask you, because Carol and I both know you pretty well. We've watched your career and and I wonder you've managed through all sorts of crises before what's different about this one from a leadership perspective and and from the CEO's seat yeah you know I thought when I took my last company public in August 2008 that was kind of going to be the biggest crisis I would have um, (laughs) lived through Um, this has been this has been very different Um, number one this is truly global Um, you know Number two, there's an aspect of uncertainty that we've never had before. Um, you know, number three, it has made us all isolate in a very different way. Um, and all of those things, you know, you have to take in from a leadership uh, perspective. And right now, and, you know, not that it wasn't then, but the need to, A, communicate. I'm not just the CEO. I'm the chief communication officer, the chief crisis officer, the chief hope officer. What people are needing and feeling right now um, is they, they want to know 
you know, where they stand, what is happening at any given time. And, you know, my feeling is control what you can control. Tell people what you're doing. Galvanize them around what you can do um, and, and keep that focus. And I'm very fortunate that, you know, our leadership team has really come together. I mean, we've, we've built a culture of purpose, and they're galvanized around how what we can do, and I'm galvanized around what we can do for them and for others. I think the other thing that's different this time is the world has changed since then, and um, authenticity is really important. Uh, I say that, you know, people used to think vulnerability was a weakness. It's a strength. Hmm. Um, people want to understand if they're feeling, you know, something that they're not alone. And so the number of town halls and the number of communications that myself and, you know, our leadership team has done has been significant. And we have tried to be, you know, transparent. We've tried to communicate whether that's what's happening with the business, um, what's happening with, you know, our studios or our offices or everything around the world. Right. Um, and, you know, I think that's, that's been a very big, big factor in this. And, and, and lastly, it's not just one thing. You know, we have a pandemic. We have a financial, um, you know, challenge. And, you know, in the United States in particular, um, you know, we have a real issue in terms of racism right. and, you know, yes. what we are going to do as uh, a country and what we're going to do as businesses. Um, so, again, it's all of these things happening at the same time that really require, um, you know, your ability or the CEO's ability to address them in a very humane way. And I think it's really a call to moral leadership right now. And what does that moral leadership look like to you, especially around the racial justice issue, Mindy? So, you know, for me, it's been devastating. You know, I've been such a champion of diversity uh, my whole career, and it's been very emotional. And, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate. My CHRO, Kim Seymour, who who is a a black woman, but she's um, been my partner, and the two of us um, have really you know, spent a lot of time saying, you know, how are we going to, you know, manage and what are we going to do? And we, we had had and made progress um, around diversity within our company. There's a reason we have a diverse board that didn't happen by accident. There's a reason we have a diverse executive team. But the first thing we did was do a town hall um, and said, look, we've made progress, but it's not enough. And we need to do more and we need to do it better. That's WW President and CEO Mindy Grossman. And Jason, I feel like every time you and I talk with her, we just want more and more time. She continues to be one of those individuals that whatever industry she is, she really is transforming it. And she's definitely thinking about wellness in a very, very different way and a holistic way. Well, and she's the first to admit this time's hard and this time's different. She looks back to the financial crisis, taking a company public in that. But Mm -hmm. listen, trying to reshape and do everything she's trying to do with that company just got a whole lot harder. 
quarter in 2020. Well, that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Plenty for you in our next hour. We'll hear from Linnea Irvin. She's the president of the Center for Talent Innovation, spent a long time on Wall Street. She, too, is on the front lines when it comes to diversity and inclusion. So we'll have that conversation in just a moment. And speaking of the front lines, we're also going to hear from LeBron James. I'm looking forward uh, to the season getting restarted, uh, getting back in the Laker uniform. Um, and continue to, to to push the envelope, not only on the court, but off the court. My conversation with King James and the man behind the legend himself, his longtime friend and business partner, Maverick Carter, that's coming up later on. Jason, it's such a timely conversation. It is this week's cover story. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Today, we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show. But this week, there's a little bit more, Carol. Oh, my God. There's so much more. And I have to say, Jason, this is a story, an interview that you have been working on for months. It's such a timely interview with LeBron James. I feel like we don't need any adjectives in front of him because everybody knows who he is. I have not heard a true official apology to Colin Kaepernick on what he was going through and what he was trying to tell the NFL and tell the world about why he was kneeling when he was doing that as a San Francisco 49er. So clearly, King James has some opinions about what's going on in the world. More of that Bloomberg Business Week cover story conversation is ahead. First up, though, let's get to our conversation with someone who is a recognized leader in diversity and inclusion. She spent a decade on Wall Street. She took a job at the Center for Talent Innovation in early March. She had a lot to say about the virus and racism in the United States. She is Linnea Irvin, president of the Center for Talent Innovation. Conversations are are critical, right? Um, Opening up safe space for real dialogue, Um, You know, it's a great way to ensure that your employees feel heard, you know, um, ensure that they're seen. Um, But it's also a really great opportunity for uh, leaders and would-be allies to listen, right? Be active in in, uh, their leadership Um, and, and demonstrate some awareness of this moment in time, the context in which we live, disproportionate impact, right? Um, I'm sure many leaders are, of course, they're considering uh, COVID-19 and unemployment rates. And uh, and obviously, they, they cannot unsee uh, racism and pol- police brutality. Um, but at the same time, are they communicating, are they signaling to their employee base that this is top of mind for them? Um, you know, I think, I, you know, I hosted a, a similar conversation, uh, you know, within my organization a couple weeks ago. And you know, while on one hand, there was tremendous vulnerability from a leadership standpoint to share my experiences in the end after listening to, uh, you know, the team share. But on the other hand, it was extremely powerful, right? It's important for leaders to be visible, to be vocal. And in this case, even if the conversation was difficult, it offered up space for storytelling. It offered, offered up meaningful bridging capital and brought the team closer together. And so I think conversation is a good place to start, uh, you know, for for leaders looking to connect with their employees at this time. Lene, the other thing, you know, and it's something Jason and I've talked a lot about, in particular, over the past month, um, we had a conversation, conversation with John Hope Ryan of Operation Hope. And, and what's interesting is he was talking with younger, a younger population. 
you know, about why people are protesting and why does it get kind of sometimes, you know, out of control a little bit. And and they said to him, you know, you have a seat at the table. You get to go to the White House. You get to talk to executives. We don't have a seat at the table. You know, we're not in the room when it all happens. And so it's, and in, as he said to us, this is a poverty issue. This is, this is, you know, a much deeper entrenched problem in our situ, you know, in, in our system what do you think we as all leaders and, and who have voices, what can we do to change that? How do we change that? Well, right. Well, I mean, first, admit that there is entrenched bias, right? That, is, that, that creates barriers to um, success or, you know, access to meaningful work. Just, you know, that admission alone is a, a, a great step. And then I think, you know, it's important for leaders to, you know, be intentional about what they can control, you know, whether that's, you know, hiring, development, promotion of, of key talent, um, you know, representation is, and, and visibility is, is really important. Our research finds um, that, uh, you know, it's probably one of the most important things when you do have um, talent, uh, some talent frustrated with their um, advancement. One in five black professionals, for example, um, feel that someone of their race could never achieve a top position at their company, meaning they can't envision a reflection of their own image in the C-suite or a CEO, right, mm. compared to uh, 3% of white professionals, right? And then professionals of color, you know, as a whole are less likely to have access to senior executive advocates. One-fifth of black employees, and I would note 15% of Asian professionals say that not a single leader knows them by name. Imagine being rendered invisible in connection to power and the long term impact that could have on one's career, right? So I think one, one thing that will help, um, uh, you know, organizations kind of bridge with, with, you know, emerging talent, those that are coming up in these organizations, and they are um, looking to eventually have a seat at the table, acknowledge that there is a disconnect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's a, there's a our, in our Being Black in Corporate America uh, research, one really big finding was a perception gap um, that was unveiled in the data. Uh, so uh, black professionals, for example, they witness, you know, they experience barriers to advancement, but they seem, this seems largely invisible to their white colleagues. So where 65% of black professionals say, yes, black talent have to work much harder to advance, only 16% of their colleagues agree with that statement. So there's a material... Wow. Per- God. There's, there's a material... Yes, yeah. there's a material perception gap that makes overcoming this hurdle of retention, development, advancement, that much more difficult. And that's Linnea Irvin, president of the Center for Talent Innovation, another very timely voice, Carol. And I have to say, one of the things that struck me as I thought about our conversation with her is it was pointed. You know, this was not someone saying, well, we need to make some changes. Well, let's see what we're going to do. She was specific. And I have to say, pointed. I I keep coming back to that notion that it's time. We got to do something. Well, and what I loved, and I feel like I've been repeating it to everybody I talk to, meet, she said that leaders coming out making statements about diversity, they first have to do the work internally at their own organizations to earn the right to make those statements externally. That, to me, says it all. Absolutely. And echoes, I dare say, of a conversation we're going to hear later on with LeBron James. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, as we all face increased levels of stress, you may be thinking about getting a massage. Maybe. What does the future of the industry look like? We're going to hear from Todd Left, the CEO of Hand and Stone Massage. Oh, my God. If only. He understands, though, so much about the world of small business. This is Bloomberg. 
This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations that we had throughout the week on our daily radio show. A reminder, as we like to do, is that there was a lot going on, as everybody knows this week. The news constantly, Jason, evolving around us. That's exactly right. And we know that the world has been shifting for small businesses, franchisors and franchisees. So it was especially interesting to catch up with Todd Leff. He's the CEO of Hand and Stone Massage. They have hundreds of locations across the country, how they closed and how they reopened. It's instructive for where we go next. Part of our strategy was really, you know, how do you preserve um, the franchisee liquidity? That was mm-hmm. that's one of the most important things because we want them to be around to reopen. Right. And so one one of the things they had to do early on was, um, you know, lay off all of the staff except generally managers. And so uh, within a two week period, we uh, the system uh, laid off about eleven thousand employees. Wow. So it was a you know, pretty big hit. And, um, you know, obviously to all those workers, you know, very unfortunate as well. And so what's the process like of coming back? I mean, from a safety perspective, from a worker perspective, walk us through the process of that. Yeah. So, you know, that was my biggest concern early on. I mean, you know, when we, we sat there, you know, kind of mid-March and, and late March, you, you really have to answer first the existential question, as you said, Jason, at the outset, can you do a hands-on business safely um, with COVID-19 without a vaccine, without a, a really solid cure? And so we didn't wait for, you know, kind of the government to dictate policy or determine it. We, we actually went out and engaged our own panel of health experts. So we had an infectious disease researcher, uh, several medical uh, practitioners, and then a, a medical director of a massage school um, to really help us design the protocols necessary uh, to, you know, make sure that this process could be done uh, safely. And, and as we did the research into this, it, you know, it actually ended up and everybody learned so much over this course of time that that our service is actually a relatively low risk activity because generally uh, the, the disease was being transmitted through respiratory uh, means. And so we're really more skin to skin, hands on. Um, it didn't impact, assuming everybody wore, you know, had, had the proper, you know, PPE, it did not it wasn't as risky as maybe the perception would be as you Mm. sit there from the outside. But we did, we did have to develop a a lot of new safety protocols. And and so that we use that time wisely, you know, the month we were closed to to develop those protocols and then go retrain, you know, 10,000 staff members on, on how to do this activity uh, as they reopen. So two questions. I'm curious about what those safety protocols exactly will be. Like if I go in for a massage, is it somebody Mm -hmm. that's kind of suited up in a mask and they've got, you know, um, gloves on or some, you know, some, you know, I'm just curious how it works out. And I am curious how many of your workers are you ultimately going to be able to bring back? So as to the first question, there are a a number of of safety changes and you would see a a different process than if you had went in, you know, prior to March 1st. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do require that all of the staff members wear masks. Estheticians, who these are the folks who do the facial services, have to wear both masks and face shields during uh, the service. Uh, Customers, we are 
uh, certainly in most states, and we've worked with states in developing these guidelines, in most states, customers are also required to wear masks while they're getting the massage. If it's not a state where it's required, then we, we have a high recommend and we allow the local jurisdiction to set that. Uh, we now disinfect the entire room after each service. So in between any service, the room is, is disinfected. Um, we were fortunate that we had sinks in all of our treatment rooms. And so we require hand washing uh, by the, the uh, massage therapist prior to the service. Some states, they require the customer to hand wash prior to uh, getting the service. And then a lot of things in the in just the transactional nature of it, um, going to a contact light transaction. We really close down a lot of the lobbies, and we ask customers to wait in the car, and we text them so they can walk right into the treatment room instead of sitting in a in a lobby. So you would notice a number of changes. I guess one of the things that strikes me is all the stuff you're talking about costs money. So what are the things you have to do operationally to ensure for yourself, for your franchisees, that this business is able to continue in this sort of new normal that we're going to be in for some time? Right. Well, I think that in the short term, we do see an increase in uh, you know our operational costs to meet these new safety protocols and guidelines. But um, on the the other side of it, obviously, um, demand has has come back very strong. We are uh, a membership base as well, although we have you know we also serve non-members and, and guests. So a, a lot of our members, over seventy percent of our member base, uh, stayed with us and continued to to actively pay their membership fees uh, during the time that we were uh, closed. And that's Todd Left, the CEO of Hand and Stone Massage and Facial Spa. Important that we get that in there too, Carol, because yeah. it's interesting when you think about their lines of business. These are, to say the least, intimate interactions oh my God, with totally. people. And I have to say, I walked in thinking, all right, well, this guy's just going to talk about how everything's closed. Not the case. No. Listen, what's interesting is they said even in the shutdown, everything was shut down by April 1st, they still had 70% of their members staying with them. And remember, both of us were talking about this afterwards, 80% of their comparable store sales, it is back. So it's interesting to see how they are finding their way back to reopening. Amazing. Uh, A very surprising conversation, but also some very specific insights to how you do it and also how you think about it as a small business. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, hospitals and they are counting beds again as coronavirus cases rise. We'll hear from Lloyd Minor, Dean of the Stanford University School of Medicine, and David Entwistle, President and CEO of Stanford HealthCare. Lots to look forward to. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had across our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show. This week, it was a doozy to say the least, Carol, especially as we saw all these headlines 
about the virus. And one of the most important things we have to understand is how does this manifest in hospitals? That was really striking to me, Jason. And you and I talked about it throughout the week that when we check the most read stories, it's one of our favorite functions on the Bloomberg constantly now this week. Many of the top 10 stories had to do in some way with the virus. So it was a timely conversation that we had with Lloyd Minor, Dean of the Stanford University School of Medicine, and David Entwistle, President and CEO of Stanford Healthcare. They just opened a new facility late last year. We are seeing an increase in the number of COVID cases in many uh, cities and locations across the United States. And I think that indicates that we need to continue to observe social distancing, uh, the masking guidelines that have been rolled out in many communities. There's good evidence that masking helps to prevent the infection. It's going to be, I think, a location-by-location decision as to what additional measures are put in place, that is, whether or not we roll back from stage two, where many places are today, to earlier stages. But the main thing is we've, we've got to be more prudent about um, as we resume activities as businesses, restaurants, uh, department stores start to open. We've got to observe social distancing. We've got to use masks um, and do things that lessen the spread of the infection. Well, and David, largely because all of this comes down to, or so much of this comes down to essentially hospital capacity. So help us understand from the perspective of someone running a hospital, what you worry about with this spike and what hospitals like yours are doing. And and obviously you're not facing at the moment uh, any sort of surge, but in your shoes or in the shoes of uh, others running hospitals, what are they thinking about? Well, no, I appreciate that opportunity. One of the things that we wanted to do, and certainly with any slowdown, which we did uh, as the initial pandemic came on, as we started to see the numbers dip a bit, what we were most concerned about then is getting some of the folks back into the queue that actually needed some of the delayed surgeries and other things that were going on. We started with, which I think is a bit of a model building on what Dean Miner said, actually doing testing. So making Mm -hmm. sure that the population that we had within the hospital itself, our employees, our physicians, uh, that we were free of the virus. And we actually uh, tested over 12,000 employees and staff and uh, saw less than a 0.3% of those staff actually had the virus. And so we knew that we were creating a safe environment. But I think it's important, despite being able to be there and be a resource for the community, we do also have to have capacity. And one of the things that we've done, despite opening back up, doing our elective surgeries uh, is creating still a capacity within the organization that's there and always available because that really is the concern is if we get another uh, significant spike, will we have the capacity to be able to treat and we want to make sure that we're ready for that this time without having to shut everything down. Well, Dean Miner, you know, what have we learned? You know, here we are, Jason and I, you know, have been working from home, essentially. Jason went into the office a little bit this week, but he's back home. But here we are in, I think, week 14, week 15. Um, what have we learned from the medical perspective about how to treat with the, how to treat the virus, how to stay ahead of it, how to watch for either another spike? I mean, tell us what we've learned. Thank you. I think we've learned several things. First is that this is a respiratory virus. The principal mode of transmission is from one person to the next through secretions, through mucus, through a cough. Um, And and there may be other modes of transmission as well, but the main danger is through direct contact uh, with secretions of someone who is infected. And it is a highly infectious virus. 
we've certainly improved our ability to treat people who become ill. In the hospital, our own hospital, Stanford Hospital, uh, we have been a pioneer in the studies of remdesivir uh, that has been shown to be effective in re- in improving the recovery rate uh, and, and perhaps also in lowering the risk of, of mortality from the virus. We've been a part of those studies. We now have studies going on in the outpatient setting using antivirals at the time someone is diagnosed with the infection before they become severely ill, using antivirals in a clinical trial setting in order to determine if there are therapies we can give to outpatients that reduce the severity of the disease and reduce the likelihood that people will need to be admitted to the hospital. That's Lloyd Miner, Dean of the Stanford University School of Medicine, along with David Entwistle, President and CEO of Stanford Healthcare. Again, these are two individuals, Jason, who have seen so much when it comes to the virus, both reminding us that this is still a very serious infection and that, you know, reopenings are rolling them back, which is something we talked about a lot throughout the week. They need to be on a location-by-location basis. And bottom line, we still need to be more prudent, even as we reopen. Absolutely. Got to look at the data. Mm-hmm. Got to look at hospitalizations. Got to look at this rising cases and figure out where to go next. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we've been looking forward to sharing this one with you all show long. I've been looking forward to sharing it with you for months. LeBron James and longtime business partner Maverick Carter. Perfect for weekend listening. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations that we had throughout the week on our daily radio show. And I got to say, one of the best conversations, Jason, was one that you had this week. Well, I appreciate that. It was one that I was looking forward to, timely to say the least. King James himself, LeBron James, his longtime friend and business partner, Maverick Carter. I had talked with them in February. Mm -hmm. I caught up with them again this week, all about their company, the Spring Hill company that they are launching. But more importantly, this moment and whether it will be more than that. I think it's a special moment in the sense that um, you can be heard. Um, Activism and and activists have always been around, Um, but people had a closed ear and a closed mind um, and and didn't want to recognize and didn't want to hear and didn't want to be um, um, knowledgeable about what they were speaking, where they were coming from, um, the passion that they were speaking with. Um, Now it's it's being heard. People can be heard. Uh, Black Americans, African-Americans, you know, can be heard. Both men and women can be heard um, of what they're passionate about and the calling for help and the calling for we're being, we're just tired. So, you know, I don't want to say activism is something that's, um, you know, now everyone's doing it. No, it's always been around, but you know, in the, in the case of George Floyd in the case of so many other um, innocent lives uh, being taken away, um, they've put up a stand and, and, and now, you know, we're being heard and everyone is being heard. Um, not only, um, you know, from, from what Muhammad Ali was saying and so many that came before him and so many after him, um, but even the local people, the people in the community, because those are the real ones, the, the, the people that's in the communities that's living and walking those streets and, and being racially profiled and being judged every day that they walk in their cities. They're the ones that need to be heard and they're being heard right now. And it's, it's great to see. And so what does it feel like in, in Akron? I mean, you talked about Los Angeles a little bit, but, you know, you and Maverick have said often that so much of what animates you 
started in Akron. You guys met when you were children. And I wonder how this feels there, LeBron. No, absolutely. Um, we always we always recognize where home is and home base. It starts there. You know, having my I promise school here and understanding the, um, you know, the level of importance with my kids. And, you know, when the pandemic, when when COVID started, it was um, it was it was kind of heartbreaking because I knew that my kids would have to leave the school. We had to shut down our school for a period of time. And I understand how important structure is and hands on is with my kids in my school. So, you know, that was very troubling times for me and troubling times for our faculty members and, and everyone that had to do with the IPS because, you know, we're so used to having our kids and we un and we know how important having them in the classroom and having them underneath our our wing and our and our guidance. Um, so we're always paying attention to our hometown and listening to the people, listening to what's going on there. Um, so that is constant every single day, no matter, um, you know, me and Maverick living in Los Angeles. Uh, we, we have hands on and, and, and our ears to what's going on in our hometown of Akron, Ohio as well. Maverick, one of the things that you did during the pandemic that was forced by the pandemic was graduate together. Tell me why that was so important and what was different about it and what it represented for Spring Hill and what it says about the opportunity. Yeah, the, obviously the pandemic unfortunately forced all of students uh, back home. And, and, and as LeBron said, unfortunately the kids, the students at, our, at a school like I Promise, the school is the, well, for a lot of those kids the safest place and where they get the most structure because home is, is tough. And, 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 and especially for seniors, right? High school seniors who didn't, you know, get the chance to graduate and walk across the stage and get the diploma, which is a big moment for all of us. And, and, and even a person like me, it's the only graduation I've ever had. Right? It's the only graduation LeBron's ever had. So it's very memorable and it's an important moment in everyone's life. So at the company, we got approached um, uh, by partners to, to come along and produce, graduate together and, and do it with, with Lorraine Powell Jobs' company. And it was just important that we really over-delivered for those students, for those kids. It wasn't about us. It wasn't about the networks. Uh, LeBron did a fantastic job hosting. We were fortunate enough to have uh, President Barack Obama deliver uh, the, the commencement speech. But it wasn't about LeBron. It wasn't about Obama. It wasn't about us as a company. It was about creating a special, memorable moment for those students just like we all, we got the chance to do when we actually got to experience it live. Unfortunately, they didn't. They had to do it in their living rooms with their families. And that's what made me very happy and proud is all the texts that I received from, from families and, and parents who said that was a special moment for my graduating senior. And now they at least have something they can remember it by. And we did a t-shirt. We wanted to make it as special as possible and do it in the Spring Hill way, which is bring it to life as a, as a show. On network TV, we did an after party on, on uninterrupted uh, Instagram live channel, and we brought a product. So we wanted to really give them a full 360 moment so they felt very memorable and something they could always remember, just as though if they could do it live and in person. And LeBron, we moved from that to more than a vote that was launched officially this week. What does success look like for more than a vote as you look toward November? Um, I think success looks like um, educating uh, the people that's on the grounds in these cities that we're tackling. Um, you know, 
we've had voter suppression for so for so long. Um, people not understanding um, how they can vote, where they where they can vote, if their vote really counts. Um, you know, in the black community, you know, you always hear "go out and vote," but what you don't understand is who am I voting for? Where can I vote? Uh, how many people am I voting for? What does these votes mean? What do they stand for? Um, so the education side. Um, is what we're most uh, proud about. That is success for us, where we're actually getting um, these communities um, out to vote, but they're even more educated on who they're voting for, how they can vote, where they can vote. Um, they have that power. Um, there's, some, there's a lot of people that believe that they can't vote because they've had previous convictions with the law or, or, or they've been to jail and they've been told that they cannot vote, uh, that their vote um, does not get submitted and things of that nature, which is untrue um, in a lot of states that we're tackling. So to educate and to make aware of the people that's on the ground that has a lot to do with the future of our country, um, that is the, one of the success that we can have. And we'll see what happens in November. And so, LeBron, to that point, what can you do, given your stature, to ensure that this isn't fleeting? What are the things that we need to be doing and thinking about? What can you do to really take this forward in many ways? What are you thinking about? Well, for me, my mission doesn't change. Um, I've been doing this since day one, you know, and Maverick just touched on a lot about our brand and our company and what we've been doing. But, you know, even since I, you know, came out, you know, from, from high school to the NBA, you know, instead of going with a company, I decided to hire my friends. I decided to have hire my friends um, that I believe um, we could all grow together. We can we can we can have shortcomings. We can have bumps in a row. But at the end of the day, if we stick with one another, and we're true to each other. Then we can build this together. So I've been doing this since day one. So my mission has not changed at all. Uh, continue to educate myself because the more educated I am, then the people around me will get educated as well and continue to pass that down to the youth. I mean, the youth is our future. I mean, we look at the class of 2020 this year, uh, the high school graduation, and there's nothing that they will not be ready for after having a year like this. You know, so for me to have the knowledge that I have and the blueprints that I have to be able to continue to pass it down to the generation below me, to the generation that's with me, and continue to understand how important um, these times of every day is. It's not, being a leader is not, when, it's not about when you decide to do it. It's every single day. And that's LeBron James, star, of course, of the Los Angeles Lakers. And maybe more importantly for this conversation, chairman of the Spring Hill Company, his business partner, the CEO of that company, Maverick Carter. They've known each other since they were kids, Carol. This is a special relationship. So and great. where they are in the culture, where they are right now is incredibly, incredibly important. And what I think is really fascinating, Jason, considering the backdrop of the last month and we've been talking about diversity and racism in America, I feel like this is a company for where we need to be today. They kind of set the model. Well, and what you just heard, it's just scratching the surface. For the mm. full interview, download the podcast. Just go to our podcast feed. You can get the whole thing. And let me tell you, it was wide ranging. We talked a lot about the issues of the day. We talked a little bit about basketball, but also to your point, Carol, where we go from here. And I have to say, it's a bit of a bracing conversation at times because Maverick Carter especially talks about 
racism, talks about what he has experienced, but also what it means to ultimately enable this system that we've all been being a part of and hopefully what we can do about it. I'm just going to say it's a must read, it's a must listen, and it's a must watch because you can check out your TV special and your conversation with both of them on Bloomberg TV. That wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio, our show, live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. And in addition to our daily podcast, plus the LeBron and Maverick interview, download our Business Week extra podcast this week as well. We talk a lot about wellness, a holistic approach to medicine. Our conversation with Dr. Vijay Vat, it was a fascinating mm, one. Totally. He's a sports medicine specialist and he works at the hospital for special surgery, but he's thinking about medicine and treatment in the sort of way that we need to be thinking. Talk about innovation in medicine. He is certainly working on that. And I'm just going to say that all the interviews that we had uh, in our weekend show, many of them, you can find the full interview by checking out our podcast feed. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.